The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I am John Howard and I am joined today by Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is a political strategist and historian. See, I'm including historian now, Gary South. Hi, guys. Before, and uh, we asked Gary to you know, stop by and educate us a bit about the primary. So, Gary, thank you so much for being here. Sure. So, I guess question number, question number, what's your first takeaway on the primary that we are? Both are still being counted, but um, what, what's your take on it? Talking statewide macro. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing that surprised me most was the pathetically low turnout. I mean, as you mentioned, John, there's a couple million votes, I think a bit more than that, still to count with late um, arriving mail ballots and provisionals. But nonetheless, it looks like even if you take the best case scenario, we're talking about a turnout here in maybe the high 20s. Um, and that, you know, that's a little disturbing. I mean, it's, uh, we, we now make it so easy for people to vote. Every, every registered voter in California, as you well know, gets a ballot in the mail. They don't have to even really go out of their house to vote. They can do it on their kitchen table and, you know, put the ballot in the envelope and sign it and mail it back even without a postage stamp. But despite the fact we, we've made voting so incredibly easy in this state, we just don't have a very good base of participation. Now, if I can sort of hypothesize a bit, I think there are a couple of reasons why this particular primary turnout was as low as it was, no matter what the final percentage ends up being. One is that, you know, I know from 40 years of campaigns that the top of the ballot always drives the, 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 the turnout. I mean, if, if it's a presidential race, it's the president. If it's a state and a gubernatorial race, it's the governor's race. I've run several governor's races in California, as you both well know. And in this particular case, it was, it was obviously foreordained that Gavin Newsom was not going to be seriously challenged after he beat the recall last year, just last year. It was last September. Um, 62 to 38. And in the, in the process of smashing that recall, he also basically destroyed what the potential Republican candidate field would have been in this election for re-election, re because all of them, three or four of them actually ran in the recall, probably inadvisedly, and they all got slaughtered. And so he not only showed his own strength electorally by beating this recall 62-38, but in the process, he also demolished the, the potential Republican field for this year in his reelection campaign. So there was nothing happening at the top of the ticket. Newsom has a lot of money in the bank, but he didn't spend a lot of it. I saw a few ads. And so there was nothing at the top of the ticket to really drive turnout. The other, the other factor that I would point out to you that you know is that a couple of cycles ago, the legislature passed a law that moved all ballot measure campaigns to the general elections in the fall, except for those put on by the legislature itself, curiously enough. So without 
in the absence of having ballot measures that are really hot, where $100 million is spent on this side and $64 million on that side, as often happens in California, there were no ballot measures on the ballot. So, so there was nothing in, in terms of the candidate field. It was boring. It was all preordained. Um, not a lot of money was spent by any of them, including the governor. And there were no ideological or philosophical issues on the ballot in the form of, of initiatives to drive turnout. So I think that despite this kind of shockingly low turnout, there are some pretty good reasons why people just shrugged and said, you know, I can't, I can't influence anything anyway, so why bother to vote? What about the age disparity? I, I, I saw as of uh, Wednesday, uh, 6% turnout for 18 to 34-year-olds. Uh, well, 32% out for the geezers. Correct. 32%. And the no, people... People, yeah, people well, like me. Yeah, like me. But well, I mean, you think the younger voters would be more energized and and anxious to vote. I mean, I know there's no Vietnam War going on now, so you don't have to worry about getting sent to a jungle and dying. But I, I don't know, it just seems to me young people are more experimental, political, they're more social, or I don't get it. So I don't know, what's your, well, your take on? I've observed that too, John, and I'm gonna say something that might not be totally politically correct, but it wouldn't be the first time in my life I've done that. Uh-oh, Tim, get the delete button. Okay, all right, go ahead. You know, I'm I'm a baby boomer. Uh, I would say I'm a proud baby boomer, but I'm a baby boomer. And, you know, I've listened for, I don't know, 10, 15 years to millennials and Generation Zers complaining about baby boomers. They're running everything. It's time for a new generation. They got to get out of the way. Well, <laughs> if that's what they want, <clears throat> then they should turn out and vote. There's a uh, Carlin routine where he said, uh, you know, you hear from everybody, it's time to go out and vote. You've got to vote. It's your civic responsibility. You, you've got to vote. And he says, I never vote. And so when it comes time to talking about these idiots that have been elected to office, hey, you can't blame me because I didn't cast the ballot. Um, do you think people stay home just because they're fed up with everybody? Or is there something else going on here? Well, I have a different theory about it. And again, um, I hate to pick on the millennials and the Gen Zers, but one of the things that I think has happened with those generations, and I, by the way, I have a lot of nieces and nephews in those generations, um, so I'm not exempting my own family even from it, but I think that those generations are so into social media and you know, apps on their phones and, and online stuff and on and on that they think because there's all this flurry of activity happening, you know, they're texting people and they're putting things on Instagram and they're doing TikTok and that, that somehow that's real activity politically. And well, it is in a way, but it ain't voting and it's not influencing the political system if you don't cast a ballot. So I think that Again, I'm not a I'm not a uh, you know psychologist or a social scientist, but 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 I just think that that one of my theories about those those younger generations down below the 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 baby boomers is that they are so taken, they're so enthralled with their social media activity and their online activity, and you know TikTok this and and 
Instagram that, that somehow they think because they're talking about politics or they're talking about government or they're talking about policies in those social media forums and, 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 and formats, that somehow they're doing something politically. Now, they may be with their peers, but unless at the end of the day they cast their ballot, it's not really having any political impact. That's one of my theories anyway. I could be all wet, but, but that's, that's my story and I'm sticking with it. Well, you know, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. However, I will also sit, just say as, as a person who's now in my 50s, I was busier when I was in my 20s. I was working... I was working a lot and then I would be running around with my friends and I would be, you know, helping somebody work on their car or whatever. I, I was, I was out and about. And I mean, I was always kind of a political junkie, but now I'm just home. And when you're home, you have a lot more time to think about that and kind of focus in on politics. I just feel like, especially if you're raising a family and you got young kids and, and you're, or you're dating and you're looking for your partner, it's a lot harder to get engaged in politics and actually care. I mean, California makes it so easy to vote. There really isn't much excuse. But I do feel like people are just kind of checked out because they're living their lives when they're younger. Whereas at a certain point when you're older, you're just sitting at home, watch TV or looking at Facebook or whatever, a lot more than you were when you were in your 20s. I mean, that's my take on this. Well, I think you're, I think you're right, Tim. But I will tell another story that sort of impugns my own generation, which is that when I was in college, one of the things that I helped lobby for was the 18-year-old vote, because at that time, you couldn't vote until you were 21. And so I was a student body president at my university. I went back to Washington. Mike Mansfield was the sitting Senate majority leader from Montana. And we actually got the 18-year-old vote passed nationally, as you know. And after that happened, I actually really pressed the registrar voters in my um, county, in my county in which my university sat in Montana, to designate the campus itself as a voting precinct, which it had never been because you couldn't vote unless you were 21. So most of the students there weren't eligible voters. And so I forget actually what was on the ballot. It wasn't a general election, you know, where the president was, uh, the presidency was up for grabs, but it was some local election where the local registrar did agree to set up a precinct on the campus and they had poll workers. And um, what was embarrassing was that at the end of the day, at the end of that election day, after having put all of this effort into trying into setting up the campus itself as a voting precinct, there were more poll workers that day than there were people who actually showed up to vote. Absolutely. <laughs> So this is not, I mean, again, you know, I, 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 I crapped, I crapped all over the millennials and the, and the, and the generation's ears, but in, even in my own generation, the baby boom generation, when we were that age, uh, we were, we, we mouthed off a lot about politics. We marched against the Vietnam war and everything out under the sun. But, but the fact of the matter is even back in those days, you know, the sort of 18 to 25-year-old age group was a pretty low voting demographic. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not enough of a historian. We need to do our, our uh, one emergency call to Alex Vassar, but I don't know that the younger generation has ever been a particularly active voting demographic, maybe in the 1830s or something when you died at 40. But 
you know, I think it's always been kind of middle ages and older people have really driven politics in this, in this country for the most part. No, you're absolutely true. That's, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I have a degree in American history and I've been involved in politics for 40 years and I can tell you that's true. And I've done a lot of focus groups over those 40 years in campaigns that I've run. And it is always the case. It is almost always the case that the youngest members sitting, participants sitting in those focus groups are generally speaking the least informed. And, um, you know, I, I did a uh, governor's race here for Steve Wesley in 2006, as you might remember, John, in the primary against Phil Angelides. Steve Wesley was the controller, Angelides was the treasurer, it was a dem on dem um, primary. That wasn't an open primary, by the way, it was a closed Democratic primary. And Steve Wesley spent $43 million in that primary. And we, we, we started ads back in January for a June primary. We started ads back in January all over the state. And five days out, literally the Thursday before the Tuesday election, we had a focus group down here in LA because one of the things we were trying to deduce in that campaign was whether or not Steve Wesley had more appeal to younger voters, even though he wasn't that much younger than Phil Angelides, but whether Wesley had more appeal to younger voters because of the kind of campaign we were running, the kind of issues we were talking about than Phil Angelides. So we, we have a focus group down here in LA County that consisted of 18 to 25 year old voters. I think there were 11 of them, 10 or 11 of them. And, you know, all of us campaign hands are back behind the, the two-way mirror watching this thing. And when, when we launched this focus group with these young voters, um, there were several of them who said something to the effect, well, I don't know who I'm gonna vote for yet because I haven't seen any ads for either one of them. I mean, we've been on the air since January. And, you know, that was really my first clue that that younger generation really wasn't watching TV. Now, we know, we know, we know now, you know, 15 years later, we know that that's the case. But so they're, the younger generations are getting their information in different ways than older people are. That's just a fact. And it is, it is a reality that campaigns um, will not grapple with at their own peril. Do you think it would help um, as far as turnout goes to go back to the days of yesteryear and have ballot initiatives popularly uh, subscribed and signatures gathered for ballot initiatives to go on in June? as well as November. The original impetus, as I understand it, was Democrats had a better shot at getting money, bonds, spending initiatives in November with a better turnout. In, in June, maybe not so much, but would it help to have ballot initiatives on the June ballot at the same time we have a primary? No, I don't think so. And I don't favor, um, I've actually done ballot initiatives in, on both the June ballot and the November ballot in California. Yeah. But I do not, I, I, I agreed with the move to move all of the ballot measures out of the primary into the general election for the reason that the primary turnout demographics are so skewed heavily toward 
younger and toward older voters and more conservative voters that there was a lot of gamesmanship that went on about running ballot measures. And we, we passed ballot measures in California that we should not have passed in the, in the primary because of the, of the more conservative tilt of the electorate in the primary. And so I agree with, with the move the legislature made to push all of the um, citizen-initiated ballot measures off to November but I do, as I said when we started this program, I do also believe that that is one of the factors why the primary turnout is, is so exceedingly low. But I would not revert back to status quo ante for the reason I just described. Now, shifting gears a little bit, uh, you know, you're in L.A. And in L.A., this was not a, lo a low stakes election. You have a very extraordinarily high profile mayoral race there right now. And so there was every reason for people to get engaged and vote because really, I mean, if, uh, if any one of those voters would have gotten 51%, they would have become mayor. Am I correct? That is correct. So, I mean, that's pretty high stakes and uh, we really didn't see that much turnout in LA either. Can you talk about that race and sort of the dynamics of that race? I mean, you talked earlier about Steve Wesley spending, what was it, $43 million. And I know that uh, Caruso has spent 40 million. Close to that. Mm -hmm. uh, and now we have another long slog. What, what's your takeaway from what we've seen so far in the Los Angeles election? Well, that's a very good question. And I, I will make a couple of points that I think um, are responsive to your question. The first point I would make, I've lived in LA for 30 years. I was involved in a mayor's race here in 1993. I was, I was communications director for Mike Wu when he ran for mayor of LA against Dick Reardon in 1993. Um, and so I vote here. I voted, I voted in every mayoral election. And what I can tell you is that for whatever reasons, Los Angeles is just not a very politically astute or politically engaged city. For example, the turnout in the last mayoral election we had in LA was, guess what, 20%. The turnout in the election before that in, in, in 2013 was 17%, 17%. And again, I have theories about why that is, but it's just such a vast city, the second biggest city in the, in the United States of America. It covers a lot of land area. Um, people who live in the San Fernando Valley really don't feel like they have anything common with people who live in San Pedro. And, you know, people who live in Boyle Heights don't feel like they have any real uh, kinship with people who live in Watts. Uh, people who live in Highland Park don't feel like they have any relationship with people who live in, in, in Venice. So it's just very big, very geographically diverse. And, I just don't think that there's ever been, at least in my 30 years of living in LA, I just don't think that there's ever been a real sense of community here like you might find in even some other big cities. Um, so that's, that's one reason. Um, I have to tell you that, you know, in that 1993 mayor's race, I just moved to LA two years before. So I was, that was really my first race in California. And um, 
that was a that was a hell's a poppin' race because it was the first time since 1969 that Tom Bradley had not been on the ballot. He was retiring. And so there was no incumbent. It was an open seat. And by the way, 52 candidates filed for that in that race, one for every week of the year, 52 candidates filed. And we had we had Latino candidates. We had a, we, women candidates. We had Jewish candidates. We had gay candidates. We had Asian candidates. The, so the field was very broad and diverse and a lot of debates that occurred. And Dick Reardon was spending millions of his own dollars, just like Caruso uh, did. And literally the Friday before the election, the Friday before the election, which at that point, the runoff was in was in June. The primary was in May. The runoff was in June because that was before they consolidated the city elections here with the statewide elections. It was an off year election. And so my candidate, Mike Wu, we went out. I think into the San Fernando Valley to visit a deli or something, you know, it's a little, a little photo op stop. And a lot of news crews were there because it's just four or five days before the election. And one of the on-air talents for one of the broadcasts, the net, a network broadcast station here in Los Angeles, um, came up to me and pulled me aside and whispered in my ear, when's the election again? <laughs> So it tells you, I mean, this is all anecdotal, but it tells you that there are just so many things in L.A. that that kind of auger against having a really fully politically involved electorate. And, you know, the standing joke in Los Angeles, and you'll understand where this comes from, is if you want if you're a candidate and you want to get television coverage here in L.A., drive a, a white Bronco down the freeways at high speed. Uh, I mean, when Gray Davis was governor, he's from LA. He was, he represented an assembly seat down here. He'd been controller for eight years. He was Lieutenant governor for four years. And here he is governor of the largest state in the United States. And he would come down here as city governor and have a press conference I mean, we would be lucky to get two or three stations to actually cover it live because they're off following car chases down the freeways or or somebody broke into some movie star's house. Um, So the the coverage you get down here on television, I have to tell you, is 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 not politically oriented. It's not governmentally oriented. It is, it is based upon sensationalized stuff, star stuff, Kardashians, you know, going back to the O.J. Simpson um, freeway chase. So you just don't get a lot of attention down here in politics or as a politician. Um, and whether that's right or wrong, bad or good, I don't know. But that's just a fact. It's just and it's one of the reasons why Cal- why Los Angelinos are so politically uninvolved. I can tell you having, again, done focus groups all over the state for years, when you do a focus group up in the Bay Area, you know, I'm not talking about in San Francisco itself, because you generally don't do them directly in the city of San Francisco, but, but you know, out in, in Contra Costa County or down in Santa Clara County, any place in those nine Bay Area counties, when you do focus groups, it's amazing how well-informed people tend to be. They've read the editorials in the San Francisco Chronicle or 
you know, the, the San Jose Mercury News. They've watched the news on their local TV station and they're quite well informed, right? When you do focus groups in LA, and by the way, this is a standing joke in my profession. You can ask anybody on either side of the aisle. When you do focus groups in LA, God bless them. They just tend to be the most uninformed people in the state. You know, I remember uh, when, when I was at the AP, we uh, um, I remember seeing interviews and exit polling and other things. And uh, the comparison between the California person who's interviewed on the street in California, like, uh, whoa, whoa, uh, wait, what, what, what was that? What, what? <laughs> but in New York, hey, let me tell you about uh, Giuliani. Well, that guy, 19, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you get this. In fact, you had to shut the guy up. <laughs> California. Well, it's much more laid back, you know. Well, you're right, John. And here's a funny story that 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 uh, that is in that same vein. When after da Gray, Gray Davis was elected governor in 1998, campaign that I ran, you know, he was the first Democratic governor in 20 years to be elected since Jerry Brown in 1978. He won a 20-point landslide victory, the biggest victory of any uh, anybody running for governor since back in the Pat Brown days, and. You know, the, the vice president, Gore, was out here for his inauguration and, you know, pretty high profile. Well, Jay Leno on The Tonight Show, remember he did his walkabouts? Yeah. yeah. Where he'd go out with a, with a microphone and interview people on the street. So one night, one night he went out. Uh, I forget what part of town he was in, but um, he was his, his The Tonight Show was filmed in Burbank. Uh, but nonetheless, in the in the L.A. metro area, it's covered by the L.A. media market. And so he went out on the street with his with his microphone and his camera crew to ask people, who is the governor of California? And, you know, he clearly edited the piece for effect. But 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 the point is that the the segment that that, that appeared on the air. He had people basically drawing blanks or in some cases saying Pete Wilson, right, who, who was the previous governor who'd been voted out of office. There, was, there were some people who said who said Gray Davis. I mean, there were a few people who said Gray Davis um, and some even said Jerry Brown. But at one point he was kind of frustrated. And so he 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 got this last person on this on this um, this this walkabout and said, look, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you a question, and I'm going to give you the answer in advance. The answer is Gray Davis. Okay, the answer is Gray Davis. Now, here's the question. Who is the governor of California? And, okay. and that person was stumped, said, I don't, I, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit it. I really don't know, <laughs> even, even after being given the answer. Uh, so, I don't know. I, I, I hate who's buried in Grant's tomb. You know? Yeah, I, I hate to crap all over my 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 adopted city here, but it's a challenge politically trying to get these people down here to pay attention. It just is. Well, so what happens now? So we've got we've got the the race narrowed down to Caruso and Bass. Uh, is Caruso just going to keep spending money? Is it going to make a difference? I mean, what happens between now and November? It's a very good question, and, and I, would, I, would, I would base my answer on my experience in 1993 when we had a very similar election runoff for mayor of L.A. between a minority, Mike Wu, Chinese-American, and a rich white Republican businessman in Dick Reardon. Now we have a rich white Republican businessman. I mean, Caruso changed his party registration 15 minutes before he filed 
but he's been a lifelong Republican. He's not fooling anybody and a minority candidate who would be history making, who she would be the first woman mayor of L.A. And there's been a lot of commentary about the, you know, all the all the ballots are not counted yet, clearly, but it looks to it looks like he's going to end up with about 40, 41 percent of the vote. And Karen Bass is going to end up with about 37 percent of the vote and change, perhaps. We'll see how the how the ballots stack up when um, the final certification occurs. But after spending 40 million dollars, I don't find that very impressive, to be honest with you. And I think, too, that since 1993, when a, a, a rich white Republican businessman, Dick Reardon, did win the mayorship. He did win and was mayor for eight years. But LA has changed a lot since 1993. It was pretty democratic back then. Now it's almost monolithically democratic. Um, there were pockets of LA back in 1993 that were pretty heavily white, namely the San Fernando Valley. Um, right now, the San Fernando Valley is just about as diverse as L.A. It's, it's, it's got a large minority population. So the, the, the kind of vote base that Dick Reardon depended upon to get elected over a minority candidate in 1993, I think, has changed considerably uh, here in, in, in 2022. The other problem I think that Rick Caruso is going to have is that we just got rid of a president of the United States who was a rich white businessman, billionaire businessman, who'd never had any governmental experience, who got elected president of the United States, and it didn't turn out all that well. I'm not comparing Rick Caruso to Trump, but I am suggesting that for residents of LA who watched the Trump debacle, um, Thinking now, you know, five minutes later, oh, our answer in L.A. is to elect a rich white Republican businessman who's never served in government before to solve all of our problems. I just I'm just not sure that that is going to track with people in, in, in Los Angeles. Uh, one last question. Um, the voter turnout we've been saying all along is very low. Uh, do you think it's going to improve as more ballots come in? Is the turnout do you expect to go up? We speculating maybe 26%, 24%, 28%. Is that the neighborhood we're looking at when we get done, all is said and done? I'm talking about statewide, not, not yes. LA. Yeah, John, I think so. I mean, again, I think that the, the, the word is that there are about two point some million ballots yet to count. Yeah. If, you, if you tally all that up, the final turnout is probably going to be in the mid to high 20s, which is still pretty pathetic, but it's better than, you know, 19 or 20. Uh, but it's still very, very low. We'll see how the votes, uh, how, how the votes stack up when, when they have to be certified. But uh, it's, it's very low. There's no way around it. And it's kind of, it's kind of disturbing uh, as someone who, you know, cares about the political system and, and, and really, really, you know, thinks that citizen participation in the system is, is extremely important. I do think, I will say this just gratuitously, again, I think that uh, I wouldn't say that this mayor's race is Karen Bass's to lose. Uh, I wouldn't be quite that bald about it, but 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 I do think when this thing settles out and it's a clarified two-way race between a rich white Republican businessman in, in Rick Caruso and a very experienced, I think, very strong candidate 
in Karen Bass, who would be the first female mayor of Los Angeles and is black, obviously, as well. She wouldn't be the first black mayor. That was Tom Bradley. But I think when this clarifies and people start paying attention, um, I think she wins this. Okay, fair enough. Gary South, thank you so much. Tim, you got anything to add? Well, I think we're going to, Gary's going to stick around when we go to uh, our next segment. The long-awaited segment. Gary, thank you for joining us. And who had the worst week in California politics? The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. Chesa (laughs) Boudin. Yep. We, we, yep, we think so too. Uh, You know, one I just saw this morning, the vote in San Francisco, Chesa Boudin was a prosecutor in San Francisco who was recalled by the voters. The vote in San Francisco, 25%. Yes. Uh, so a minority of a minority want to get rid of this guy. I can't help but wonder, what's the other 75? I guess they didn't care enough to go to the polls anyway. So Yeah, but John, you, you have to keep in mind that, that Chesa Boudin was elected three years ago through a ranked choice voting system. Uh-huh. And if you go back and you look at the data from that election, he came out of the primary with only about 30% of the vote. And then when candidates, you know how ranked choice voting works. If nobody scores majority, then they start eliminating the lowest vote getting candidates and reapportioning their second and third choices of their voters. And once that uh, process had concluded, you know, he, he aced out the next ranking candidate, but, this was not somebody in the in the first instance that was elected with a mandate in San Francisco. He, uh-huh. In the first instance, he was the first choice of only thirty percent of the voters three years ago. I, we, we talked about this earlier before the program, but um, you'd mentioned you'd written a, a, an op-ed, a commentary for Cal Matters, which you talked about the importance of the district attorney's position and why voters may be mistaken in thinking that they're getting or supporting somebody who might be, quote, a progressive prosecutor, when in fact voters really want, people really want a stricter, a more rigorous law and order approach from a prosecutor as opposed to, you know, political philosophy. Did that play in here? I think it absolutely did. I don't live in San Francisco. I live in LA, as as you know, but I followed from afar his so-called exploits up there. And here's what I would say. And I'm saying this as a liberal Democrat, by the way, someone who, who I think is, you know, I'm, I'm humanitarian, I'm compassionate, um, liberal on most issues probably, but here's what people have to get through their heads. There is a reason why we call DAs prosecutors. That's their primary job, to prosecute people who commit crimes. And by the way, under state law, they are, they are designated as the public prosecutors in California, one in each county. And um, we don't need them to act like public defenders. We already have public defenders. And God bless them. They're necessary and important for our criminal justice system to defend people who, you know, can't afford lawyers who, who deserve to, be, to, be, to have counsel if they're accused of crimes. We, but we have public defenders. They're separate from the prosecutor. And if you don't, if a prosecutor is viewed by the public as not prosecuting crimes, but rather is off on some tangent where they're going to totally remake the criminal justice system to their, to their liking, they're not doing the job for which they were hired. And I think that people in San Francisco clearly came to the conclusion 
that Boudin was in that category. He was hired as a prosecutor. He loaded up the DA's office in San Francisco with all kinds of former public defenders. And, and look, I, I don't have a problem with public defenders. I mean, uh, they're, 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 I, I laud their, their activity. I mean, we need them in the system. But, but we don't need a DA's office that's stuffed with, 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 uh, with public defenders <laughs> because that's not what the DA does. The DA defends the DA defends the public. He doesn't defend people who've been who've been accused of committing crimes. You're down in L.A., so how do you see this having an impact, if any, on Gascon down in L.A.? I think it does, and I will tell you that I live in L.A. Gascon is the DA here. He beat the incumbent DA in the last city election, and and so I. I would, I would tell you that I got a petition in the mail the other day to recall Gasco, and I didn't sign it because I have kind of a visceral reaction against recalls, um, having had a client that was recalled in 2003 from the governorship. I remember that, yeah. But, but, I, but I will tell you this, if that, if that recall qualifies for the ballot, I will probably be more likely than not to vote to recall George Gasco, and even though I don't generally support recalls because I don't think he gets it either. And, and it's ironic, as you know, that, that where did he come from? He was actually the DA in San Francisco, city and county, before he moved, before he came back down here to run for, for district attorney. So I, I just, I think he's, I think he's in the Boudin mold. And I don't think he gets the fact that a prosecutor's job is to put bad people behind bars. That's their first job. And it's, it's not, it's not necessarily to reform the whole criminal justice system. That's not why they're elected. And if they don't prosecute people, those people don't get prosecuted. Because the city attorneys don't do it, city attorneys are basically civil litigants. They're not; they're litigators. They're they're they don't they don't prosecute street crimes. And the attorney general, even though attorneys attorneys general like to call themselves the top cop in the state, but attorneys general don't generally prosecute you know individual street crimes either. They can, but they don't. So if the if the DA is not prosecuting people who commit crimes then no one is doing it. That's their day job. And they should pay attention to their day job before they move off onto some other tangent about reforming the criminal justice system. Well, you know, talking about Cheza Boudin being the person who had the worst week, I think in a way he had the worst week because not only did he get recalled, but he became sort of the poster child uh, for the national media talking about a repudiation of progressive law enforcement, which I think is actually not really accurate. We, I think we had a, uh, an op-ed running Capital Weekly on that, that I tend to agree with. I mean, if you look at Rob Bonto was pretty overwhelmingly supported uh, when running for attorney general. Other people who have been progressive as far as their, their attitudes toward law enforcement did well. Boudin did not. And I think you hit the nail on the head there when he never had broad support in San Francisco. I mean, he got elected with less than a majority of the vote. I mean, with the, ultimately he did have the majority when they did the ranked choice, but he was not the first choice overall. And so I wonder if how much of this may have been that he just was not the politician that other people are, you know, that he was not able to sell his vision and people saw the feelings that they saw around them with you know, these, these robberies where people are breaking into stores and just going on mass and, and then leaving. And obviously there's this 
ongoing uh, run of, of car break-ins and other crimes. I wonder if he was uh, became the face of that, maybe unfairly, but unfairly or not, he became the face of it. And certainly now there's, you know, a million opinion writers across the country writing about the death of the reform movement police and using his, uh, his recall as their evidence, which I think is perhaps overstepping given that other people who are, are setting themselves up as reform, you know, reform people, again, like Rob Bonta did quite well, but Boudin did not. Well, uh, but Tim, I would take issue, I guess, with this, this part of your, of your statement, which is that I don't think you can equate, and, and by the way, just in terms of full disclosure, you know, Rob Bott is a friend of mine. I voted for him in the primary. I actually contributed to his campaign. So I, I know Rob and, and I supported him for, for attorney general. But I don't think you can equate an attorney general with a DA for the very reason that I just stated. The average person living in any county in, in California doesn't look for the attorney general to come swooping in and prosecute somebody who broke into their car because the attorney general, although he can prosecute criminally and he does, he has the power to do that. He, he, he is not the, he is not the chief prosecutor in the various counties in the 58 counties in California. That's the DA. And so I'll bet you, I, I can't prove it, but I will bet you that a lot of the same people that voted to recall Chester Boudin in San Francisco city and County also voted for Rob Bonner for attorney general. Yeah, you're exactly right. They're different jobs. And, and that's what these DAs have to understand. They're not the AG. They're, they're there to prosecute crimes that occur in those counties for which they have charge. And if they're not doing that, they're going to get in trouble. Well, and Chester definitely got in trouble. Got in trouble. Okay. Gary Sal, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this well, is thank you. Month. We're going to do this again. We'll do this again soon and at least after the general election. Okay. That's great. Always happy to join you guys and, and give you my two cents for whatever it's worth. Yeah, it is worth two cents. <laughs> Tim Foster, thank you so much. Thanks, Sean. Uh, and it's John Howard saying thank you all for listening, and we will check in with you next time around. Take care. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.